and welcome back to the Perspectives in History podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kopp. Thank you very much for listening, as always. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank you for the way that you have received the recent rebranding of the show. Thus far, I've only heard compliments regarding it, so I believe that rebranding will remain in place for the foreseeable future. As far as things on the technical side go, I should have fixed all the issues with the feed on most of the major podcast listening platforms. If for some reason you're still encountering issues, please contact me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. On that note, I'm still working on transferring everything over to a new Google account that will reflect the recent name change, email address included. That process should be completed by the time the next episode of the series drops in two weeks. Anyway, with all that housekeeping taken care of, on with the show. In the last episode of our series on Girolamo Savonarola, we covered the events of the first few weeks of the year 1498. This was a rather dark time for the city of Florence. The city which had given birth to the Renaissance was currently suffering from the classic combination of war, pestilence, and famine. Savonarola, who had not just a year prior predicted Florence's ascendancy, had been largely discredited in the eyes of many of its citizens. Making matters worse for the friar was the writ of excommunication that was authored by Pope Alexander VII in May of the previous year. The friar and the pope had been in the midst of a public dispute more or less since Savonarola had first begun preaching in public many years prior. Savonarola had never been afraid to denounce the corruption that he perceived to be endemic within the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, and no single figure embodied this corruption more completely than the Pope himself. Alexander VII was infamous for his many crimes, which were too numerous to list in any exhaustive detail. Suffice it to say that Savonarola refused to recognize the legitimacy of a Pope who had essentially purchased his office with his ill-gotten gains, and whose sexual escapades were more or less public knowledge. Therefore, Savonarola continued to preach in public throughout 1497 in open defiance of the Pope's authority. In response, Alexander VII began pressuring the Florentine government to have Savonarola arrested and deported to Rome, or at the very least prohibit him from delivering his sermons in public. This put the leaders of the Florentine Republic in a rather difficult position. They knew that Savonarola still remained rather popular among many in the city, and that taking any drastic action against him could result in a breakdown of public order. On the other hand, by not complying, they risked further angering the Pope, who at this time led an alliance of Italian states known as the Holy League. The Florentines were well aware that in the event the Pope induced the other states of Italy to declare war on them, Florence could not rely on its ally, the Kingdom of France, for any assistance. Hoping to find a compromise to this dilemma, the Florentines forbade Savonarola from speaking in public, but stopped just short of having him arrested and sent to Rome to face papal justice. Now essentially under house arrest in his quarters at the monastery of San Marco, Savonarola hatched an audacious scheme. At this point, the friar had become completely convinced that his long struggle to reform the Catholic Church had become a matter of life or death for him. Either he would succeed in his efforts and remake the church anew, or he would fail and surely face execution. With this in mind, in the early months of 1498, Savonarola wrote a series of letters addressed to the most powerful secular rulers of Europe, including the Holy Roman Emperor, the King and Queen of Spain, and his old friend, King Charles VIII of France. In these letters, he addressed each of the monarchs individually, imploring them to convene a church council with the aim of removing Alexander VII from office and replacing him with somebody more worthy of the papal tiara. 
Unfortunately for Savonarola, these letters do not seem to have reached their intended recipients. Unbeknownst to him, the ultimate cause of his demise would not come from Rome, but from within Florence itself. One of the friar's more outspoken opponents in the city, a Franciscan monk named Francesco de Puglia, challenged Savonarola to a trial by fire. This was essentially an ordeal wherein two individuals would attempt to pass through open flames. If one emerged unscathed on the other side, it was taken as proof of divine favor and they would be considered the quote-unquote winner of the challenge. De Puglia's challenge was more likely than not merely a rhetorical device intended to prove the extent of his hatred for Savonarola and of his confidence that his doctrine was false. Savonarola himself declined to acknowledge De Puglia's challenge, and so it would have remained a purely rhetorical one had it not been for one of Savonarola's acolytes, Domenico de Pescia. De Pescia, in his overzealousness, accepted the challenge to a trial by fire, volunteering to pass through the flames on Savonarola's behalf. Both Savonarola and de Puglia attempted to de-escalate the situation, but by that point it was far too late. Both Savonarola's supporters and opponents had seized on the trial by fire as an opportunity for either side to advance their cause. The Signoria, the executive body of the Florentine government, gave their approval, and the date was soon set, April 7th, 1498. That morning, large crowds gathered in the Piazza della Signoria to observe the ordeal. Some were genuine supporters of one side or the other, and were preparing to witness a miracle as God bestowed his favor upon their chosen cause. No doubt others were just there for the spectacle of it all. It wasn't every day that one had the opportunity to see a monk burned alive. Unfortunately for the attendees, the trial was delayed repeatedly, as the participants, anxious to undergo the ordeal, stalled the proceedings by taking up some minor issue or other. The trial was delayed for so long that the crowd began to grow restless, and while the monks were bickering amongst themselves, a sudden clap of thunder rang out, followed by a torrential hailstorm. The platform and all the incendiary materials beneath it were soaked, and it was deemed that the trial could not go forward. Disappointed, the crowd dispersed, and Savonarola, no doubt relieved, returned to his monastery. Those who supported Savonarola and his cause were of the belief that the sudden rainstorm was God's doing, that it had served as proof of the righteousness of Savonarola's cause. However, it would seem that the general public interpreted it in a much different way. The following day, April 8th, began with a church service led by one of Savonarola's fellow monks at San Marco, being violently interrupted by a gang of anti-Savonarola agitators belonging to a group known as the Combagnacci, the rude or ugly companions. The Combagnacci then took to the streets and proceeded to whip up the crowds into a frenzy, inciting them to attack Savonarola's supporters, known as the Piagnoni, on the streets, and leading them on an attack on San Marco itself. At that time, Savonarola was leading a small prayer service at the monastery when he was interrupted by angry shouting and the sound of projectiles hitting the walls. The siege of San Marco had begun. The monks quickly led the lay people among them out of the monastery, and before long, only Savonarola, his fellow monks, and a small handful of the most dedicated Piagnoni remained within the walls of the convent. Using a decent-sized stash of weaponry hidden in the convent's basement, the monks mounted a valiant defense of San Marco, but ultimately it was for nothing. Later that evening, Florence's civil guard arrived on the scene and dispersed the crowd, making their way through the monastery library to where Savonarola and his closest companions were holed up. The guards informed the monks that a warrant had been issued for the friar's arrest. After extracting from the guards a promise that he would be taken to the Piazza della Signoria unharmed, Savonarola willingly surrendered himself into their custody. 
His companions begged to go with him, but ultimately Savonarola only chose one to accompany him, Domenico de Pescia. By this juncture, it was about three in the morning, but gangs of Compagnacci still roamed the streets. The guards escorted Savonarola and de Pescia through the streets, lined with torch-bearing onlookers, who insulted and jeered at the two prisoners, occasionally attempting to physically assault them to no avail. The pair were brought before the Signoria and other assembled officials, who asked the hapless prisoners if they still believed that they were favored by God. When both replied affirmatively, they were taken to separate cells within the piazza, with Savonarola being taken to a cell atop the tower. Coincidentally, this was the very same cell that had been briefly occupied by Cosimo de' Medici when he fell from power in 1433. Another one of Savonarola's companions, one Father Silvestro Marufi, was arrested and imprisoned later that night as well. As the morning of April 9th dawned, the entire city was still swept up in the events of the previous night. Everyone in the city waited anxiously to see what would happen next. In his diary for the state, a local apothecary named Luca Landucci wrote, quote, The same sort of thing went on. Weapons were laid aside, but tongues continued to wag. The gates of hell seemed to have been opened. People never tired of denouncing the father as a wretch and a traitor, and no one dared say a word in his defense or otherwise they would have been killed, end quote. That day, there was a brief debate among the magistrates of the Signoria as to how to proceed with the matter. A few among them wished to have Savonarola sent to Rome, but they were in the minority. It was decided that the matter should be resolved within Florence and that it should be done as swiftly as possible. A message concerning recent events was soon dispatched to the Pope, who enthusiastically granted his authorization to the Florentines to interrogate the friar and his accomplices. By April 10th, Savonarola, with his hands and feet clasped in irons, was brought to the Bargello. Today, a museum that is home to works from renowned artists such as Michelangelo and Donatello, at that time, the Bargello was the most infamous prison in the city of Florence. Given that Savonarola was accused of religious crimes, he was to be subjected to the examination methods of the Roman Inquisition, meaning that if he did not confess when initially being prompted to, or if he did and his confession was deemed insufficient, his interrogators were authorized to use torture methods on him. The man in charge of the interrogation was one Francesco Barone, also known as Sir Saccone. Sir Saccone was experienced in the art of torture, and his instrument of choice was the strappato. This method of torture involved a rope being tied around the victim's hands on one end, with the other side of the rope being attached to a pulley. The victim would then be hoisted high in the air by the hands, then dropped a certain distance, and then, with the jerking motion, their descent would be suddenly halted. This process typically resulted in the dislocation of the victim's shoulders, as well as lacerated arm muscles and broken bones. If done improperly, or for an extended period of time, the strapata was liable to result in death for even the most physically fit specimens. One can only imagine the effects that it would have had on Savonarola, whose physique was already remarkably frail from decades of fasting and self-flagellation. After having been subjected to the strapato three times, Savonarola begged his torturers to be allowed to write his confession. In the appendix of his biography of Savonarola, author Pasquale Villari reproduced all 27 pages of Savonarola's subsequent confession, of which I will now read the first few. Quote, the truth of the matter is this. About 15 years ago, the first time I was in Florence, I was in the monastery of Santo Giorgio with Friar Tommaso di Strada, now dead, who was visiting his sister, a nun. I was in the church, thinking about a sermon I was composing, 
and as I thought about it, many reasons occurred to me for concluding that the church was about to undergo some sort of change. From then on, I began to think a lot about these things and about the scriptural evidence, and going to San Gimignano to preach, I began. In the two years I preached there, I proposed these conclusions that the church was to be scourged and renewed. Since I did not have this by revelation, but from reasons divined by scripture, I said as much. I preached in the same vein in Brescia, and sometimes I preached them in other places in Lombardy, where I remained for four years. Then I returned to Florence. About seven years had passed since that day in San Giorgio described above. And on August 1st, I began to expound on the Apocalypse. That was in 1490. I reproduced the same conclusions as described above. Next, in Lent, in Santa Reparata, I preached these same things, never once saying that they had been revealed to me by God, but arguing that the evidence compelled belief, and affirming this as emphatically as I could. Then, after Easter, Friar Silvestro, returning from San Gimignano, told me that he had been skeptical of what I was saying and thought I was crazy, until, during a vigil, one of our dead friars appeared to him and reproved him by saying, You should not think this of Friar Girolamo, because you know him. After that, he told me he had many more apparitions of this kind. So, as my desire and eagerness to preach such things grew, I became more ardent to reaffirm them in some way. Seeing it all go well and my reputation among the Florentine people grow, I went further and began to say that I had it from revelation, although it was purely the invention of my zeal. And so, in my great presumption, I pressed forward with it determinedly. Many times I said things Friar Silvestro related to me, sometimes believing them to be true. Nevertheless, I did not talk with God, nor God with me, in the special way that he speaks to his holy apostles, saints, prophets, and others of that kind. I continued to preach with all the force and effort of my ability, presumptuously affirming what I did not know for certain, but wanting to believe that what my own mind convinced me was true. I became so intoxicated with these things that I ended by saying I was more certain of them than I was of standing there at the pulpit, or that two and two make four. All of it was to give credit to what I was saying, and to confirm it all the more in the people's minds. I made these things appear to be true with reasons and similes, maintaining my views ever the more forcibly to make it seem that I spoke the truth and that all this was from God. But I did not know these things. Worldly glory carried me along this way until 1494." End quote. As I mentioned, this confession continues on for another 25 pages, but the broad strokes of it are contained within the first two. That Savonarola had never actually received any of the divine revelations he claimed to have, instead only having pretended to believe that he had in order to deceive the people in pursuit of his own worldly glory. Of course, the fact that this confession was extracted through means of torture raises doubts about its authenticity. Was Savonarola writing what he knew to be true, or was he just writing what he thought his captors wanted to hear from him? Given the nature of the torture he suffered, was it even physically possible for him to write at all? These are all questions that one must consider. Certain sections of the confessions seem more out of character for Savonarola than others, leading one to reach the conclusion that these things may have been fabricated by his captors out of whole cloth. Overall, it seems that although the charges brought against Savonarola were religious in nature, his interrogators seemed to be less interested with whether or not Savonarola's visions were true, or whether he intended to effect a schism in the Catholic Church, than they were with his political ambitions within Florence. As a result, their questions centered on Savonarola's meddling in Florentine politics, 
his formation of a clandestine political party, and his intention to stage an uprising against his political enemies. Particularly uncharacteristic of Savonarola was the following portion of his confession, quote, Regarding my aim, I say truly that it lay in the glory of the world, in having credit and reputation, and to attain this end I sought to keep myself in credit and good standing with the people of Florence, for the said city seemed to me to be a good instrument for increasing my glory and for giving me a name and reputation abroad. End quote. After having undergone a week of torture, Sir Saccione, satisfied with what he had managed to extract from the prisoner, prepared to present the Signoria with his findings. When he read it out loud to Savonarola, the friar verbally objected to the more obvious falsifications it contained, telling his torturer that if he were to punish the document, he himself would be dead within six months. As with Charles VIII, Savonarola's prediction would turn out to be correct. Regardless, Sir Saccione went ahead and published the document. The confession, or more likely, just a portion of it, was read aloud in public. Landucci, who was among those who heard it, wrote that day, quote, I was present when the protocol was read, and I marveled, feeling utterly dumbfounded with surprise. My heart was grieved to see such an edifice fall on the ground on account of having been founded on a lie, end quote. Meanwhile, Savonarola's two allies were undergoing similar tortures. During the trial by fire, Domenico de Pescia had already demonstrated a willingness to suffer bodily harm on behalf of Savonarola. Now, subjected to torture, he once again proved the firmness of his belief and the strength of his resolve. At first, his interrogators attempted to convince him that Savonarola had already confessed to everything and encouraged him to follow suit. He refused to do so. He was then subjected to the same tortures as Savonarola, as well as a different one, known as the Spanish Boot, a medieval torture method that, for the sake of the audience, I will not describe in any further detail. But even after a week of such torture, Friar Domenico refused to turn against Savonarola. On the sixth day of his interrogation, Domenico stated, quote, In the certainty of my mind, I have always believed, and in the absence of any proof to the contrary, still firmly believe, in the prophecies of Savonarola. I am earnestly steadfast in this faith, nor should your majesties be wrathful, for my belief can cause no harm to either myself or the city, and in such matters as these, everyone is free to believe whatever he chooses. End quote. After going along these lines for some time, he concluded his remarks by saying, quote, I can remember nothing else. If you desire to hear more from me, you may question me according to the custom of good confessors, and I will endeavor to satisfy you, as you may truly believe all that I say, inasmuch as, having ever been of a tender conscience, I know well that to speak lies before a tribunal, or to conceal that which should be made known is a sin. I have endeavored to be precise as possible, though at the point of death, and assuredly as I might die, easily if you should torture me again, Therefore, I beg you to be merciful and believe in the truth of my plain declarations. End quote. Throughout his interrogation, the admirable Friar Domenico, in the words of Pasquale Velari, quote, remained as calm and unshaken as one of the early martyrs of the church. End quote. But while he remained steadfast in his refusal to turn against his master, the other of Savonarola's imprisoned companions, Friar Silvestro Marufi, behaved in quite the opposite manner. Friar Silvestro, despite being one of Savonarola's most trusted advisors and a close member of his inner circle, attempted to hide from the authorities during the siege of San Marco, albeit to no avail. He too was arrested, imprisoned, and subjected to the same interrogation methods as his fellow friars. To be fair to Friar Silvestro, from the time that he and Savonarola had first met, he had been an old, nervous, and sickly man. Physically, he was far less well-suited to withstand torture than either of his companions were. 
with even the slightest application of pressure, Friar Silvestro folded immediately and wrote a confession denouncing Savonarola as a liar and a charlatan. Friar Silvestro's confession, which, like those of his companions, likely also underwent a fair degree of editing by his torturers, is full of statements which contradicted not only the confessions of his companions, but also itself. Also around this time, the remaining monks of San Marco, hoping to avoid sharing the fate of their prior, collectively wrote and signed a letter to the Pope protesting their innocence. They claimed that Savonarola had deceived them just as he had so many others, and begged the Pope to allow them back into the good graces of the Church. The letter reads in part, quote, Not only ourselves, but men of much greater wisdom were persuaded by Friar Gilamo's cunning. The sheer power and the quality of his preaching, his exemplary life, the holiness of his personal behavior, what appeared to us as devotion, and the effect it had of purging the city of its immorality, usury, and all other manner of vices, as well as the events which appeared to confirm his prophecies in a way beyond any human power or imagining, were so numerous and of such a nature that if he had not retracted his claims and confessed that his words were not those of God, we would never have been able to renounce our belief in him. For so great was our faith in him that we were ready to all walk through fire in order to support his doctrine. End quote. The sentiments expressed by the friars of San Marco in this letter are, as author Paul Strathern claims, an accurate reflection of the thoughts and feelings of those who had previously been enchanted by Savonarola's spell. Quote, this revelatory admission would seem to be an accurate and succinct summary of the entire Savonarola phenomenon and its effects upon those who came into contact with him. It certainly accords with the way that many modern commentators look at what took place in Florence during these years a collective delusion, which was almost certainly shared by Savonarola himself, the impressionable friars, many of whom were young, educated, and of good families, and were appalled at the humanism that had been adopted by so many of the city's intellectuals, as well as what they saw as the lax morals that accompanied this rebirth of classical values, had quickly fallen under the spell cast by this charismatic little friar. His influence had proved both intellectually radical and powerfully inspirational, while its prophetic religious manner included a heady mix of fundamentalism and passion bordering on fanatic hysteria. The bewildered young friars of San Marco believed in Savonarola. Amidst a world of profound change, they longed only for the certainty of which he preached. This was the truth, and it would be realized only if the people could be induced to adopt the virtue and purity necessary for Florence to become the city of God. The evidence given in this letter by the monks of San Marco is the most concise and clear insight we have into the faith of Savonarola and his believers, which, as we have seen, ranged throughout all classes. At some point, this may have even touched Lorenzo the Magnificent himself. After all, it was he who had invited Savonarola back to Florence, and he who had called for the prior of San Marco to visit him on his deathbed. Others, from Pico della Mirandola through the monks of San Marco to the, even the lowest Piagnoni, eventually embraced his ideas. This was the faith that had inspired Friar Domenico under torture to the verge of martyrdom, end quote. The Arabiati would soon discover that there were still a decent number of people within the city who still believed in Savonarola and remained loyal to the Piagnoni cause. Not all of his sympathizers had reacted as Landucci had upon hearing Savonarola's confession read aloud in public. And so, on April 27th, about a week after the monks of San Marco had written their collective letter to the Pope, the Arabiati-dominated Signoria ordered a mass arrest of all known or suspected Piagnoni sympathizers. Landucci reported that, quote, All the citizens arrested for this cause were scourged, so that from 11 in the morning until late in the evening, there were unending howls of agony coming from the Bargello, end quote. 
The object of the Signoria in ordering these arrests had ostensibly been to uncover definitive evidence of a Piagnoni plot to overthrow the Florentine government, but it appears that such a conspiracy was non-existent, as even the best efforts of the torturers failed to uncover any such evidence. By the 1st of May, all of these prisoners had been released, save for Savonarola and his two companions. By this point, the Arabiati had grown increasingly frustrated with the slow pace that the proceedings had taken thus far, and wished to somehow expedite the process. On May 5th, a new Gonfalonier and Signoria had been elected, all of whom were men hostile to Savonarola. That same day, they held a meeting to deliberate their next move. There were some in the new government that wished to send the three friars to Rome so that they could wash their hands of the whole affair altogether, but the majority were not of this opinion. The new gonfalonier, Piero de Popoleschi, declared, quote, The friars should be tried yet again in Florence, both on account of the way in which the previous examinations were conducted and for the sake of peace and public order within the city. If we proceed to examine them in the same way as before, this will only give rise to a scandal and, as we have already been informed, by the diplomatic representatives of every state within Italy, end quote. The majority of men in this new government agreed with Popoleschi on this matter. They immediately sent a dispatch to the Florentine diplomat in Rome, Domenico Bonsi, telling him to inform the Pope that it was their intention to have Savonarola and the two other friars publicly executed so as to make an example of them, and, if his holiness so desired, he could dispatch commissioners of his own to examine them further. Since Savonarola had been first arrested, Alexander VII had been putting considerable pressure on the Florentine government to surrender the friar into his custody. After all, he was a clergyman, and therefore his trial should be handled by ecclesiastical authorities. But by this point, Alexander VII was simply anxious to have Savonarola done away with entirely, and when he received word that the Florentines were preparing to have him executed publicly, he gave them his approval to continue with the proceedings. He did, however, take the Florentines up on their offer to have a papal commission examine Savonarola further. Alexander VII selected two men for this task, the first being an elderly theologian named Giovacchio Torriani, who also happened to be a general of the Dominican order, and Francesco Ramolino, a bishop who was more inclined to legal matters and whose expertise as a judge had aided the Pope in dealing with his adversaries in the past. Savonarola signed his second deposition on April 25th, and as he awaited the arrival of the Pope's emissaries, who had not arrived for another month, he was given a respite from the tortures that he had endured over the previous days. Forced to sleep on the stone floor, after a few days, Savonarola recovered the use of his writing hand, and his jailer, apparently moved to pity for the poor friar, allowed him to have a desk, paper, and a pen. Over the years, observers have made much of this final period of Savonarola's life, during which he utilized the relative peace afforded to him to write some of his most vaunted works. His jailer, whose name appears to have been lost to history, seems to have undergone some sort of conversion of character on account of his close proximity to Savonarola at this time, as he asked for the friar for advice on how to live virtuously. In response to this query, Savonarola wrote an entire philosophical tract, aptly entitled A Guide to Righteous Living. This work is far too long to read in full, but the following passage can be considered a succinct summary of its content. Quote, Virtuous living depends wholly on grace, wherefore we must strive to attain grace, and having won it, to increase it, to examine our sins, to meditate on the vanity of earthly things, our means towards grace. Confession and communion incline our hearts to receive it. 
certainly it is a gift freely given by God. But when we have a strong contempt for the world and a strong desire to turn us toward spiritual matters, then we may say that even if grace is not yet within us, it is assuredly drawing near. Therefore, perseverance in virtuous living, in good works, in confession, in communion, in all that draws us nearer to grace, is the true and certain way to procure its increase. End quote. Also during this time, Savonarola authored two other tracts, both of which were commentaries on the Psalms. The first of these commentaries is highly significant from a theological perspective, while the other of the two gives the reader an insight into his thoughts and feelings regarding his tribulations. I will first cover the second, which was a commentary on Psalm 30, better known by its opening verse, quote, In you, Lord, I put my trust, end quote. In this tract, Savonarola described his inner conflict, the battle between hope and despair with which he was contending, quote, Despair has pitched his camp around me and encompassed me with a strong and numerous host. He has filled my heart and wars against me unceasingly with violence and clamor, by night and by day. My friends are arrayed under his banners and have become my foes. All the things which I see and hear bear the device of despair. Wherefore, even the sweetest things still seem bitter to the fever-stricken, so for me all is turned to bitterness and affliction. But I will turn to heaven, and then hope will come to my aid. Behold, already despair quivers beneath her glance. Now let the world weigh upon me as it will. Let my enemies rise up against me, my fear has passed from me, for I have rested all my hope in the Lord. O oh, Lord, you will not grant my prayer to be released from such bodily anguish, for such grace may be hurtful to the soul, inasmuch as virtue gains strength from tribulation. Then shall I be temporarily confounded by men, their strength and power shall be arrayed against me, but you permit it, for that I be not confounded in eternity." Wherefore, I will put my hope in the Lord, and he will hasten to deliver me from all tribulation. And by whose merits? Not by mine, O Lord, but by thine. I offer not up my justice to thee, but I seek thy mercy. The Pharisees took pride in their justice. Wherefore, it was not the justice of God, which only seems to be attained by grace. No one will ever be justified in God's sight for solely performing the works of the law. Hardly could I keep myself from falling to earth and despair would have bound me fast in his chains and led me to his kingdom, had not hope appeared to me all radiant and shining with a heavenly splendor, and smiling, cried, O knight of Christ, what is thy mind in this battle? Have you faith or not? Know that your faith is a great grace of God, for faith is his gift, and is not to be attained by our own works, lest one should take glory for himself. End quote. The belief expressed by Savonarola in this passage, that grace can only be attained by faith and not from worldly action, is actually quite a revolutionary one, and it is a sentiment which he expounded upon in the first of the two theological tracts he wrote during this time, this one being a commentary on Psalm 51, traditionally known by its first words, quote, Have mercy on me, O God, end quote. Savonarola's commentary on this psalm reads in part, quote, Sinner that I am, where shall I turn? To the Lord, whose mercy is infinite. None may take glory in himself, all the saints tell us. Not unto themselves, but unto the Lord is the glory. They were saved by their own merits, not by their works, but by the goodness and grace of God. Wherefore none may take glory unto himself. O Lord, a thousand times you have wiped away my iniquity, yet a thousand times I have fallen back into it. But when your spirit shall descend upon me, when Christ shall live within me, then I shall be safe. Strengthen me in thy spirit, O Lord, 
that I not until then can I teach thy ways to the wicked. Had you asked the sacrifice of my body, I would have given it freely here and now. But burnt offerings are nothing to you. You would have the offering of my spirit. Therefore, O sinner, bring thy repentant heart unto the Lord, and naught else shall be required of you. End quote. In terms of form, this passage reads more like one of Savonarola's sermons than a biblical commentary. But in terms of content, the intent behind these words is actually extremely significant on a theological letter for reasons that I will delve into. Savonarola continued this track by returning to a favorite theme of his, the desolation of the Catholic Church. Quote, I ardently desire the salvation of all men. The works of the good greatly console me. Wherefore I beseech thee not to look on thy church, and behold how in these days more infidels than Christians are numbered within its fold, and how everyone makes a god of his own belly. Send forth thy spirit, O Lord, and let the face of the earth be renewed. Hell is filled, thy church desolate. Arise, why sleepest thou, O Lord? Our sacrifices find no favor in thy sight, for they are mere ceremonies and are unrighteous. Where is the glory of the apostles now, the fortitude of the martyr, the simplicity of the monks, end quote. In this passage, Savonarola clearly states that salvation cannot be attained through works, but only through one's faith. Again, this belief is heterodox to Catholic doctrine, which maintains that one's decisions in life, i.e. performing virtuous works and participating in the sacraments, are necessary for salvation in addition to one's faith. While to the uninitiated, the question of the roles of faith and works may seem like trying to determine how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, the distinction between these two positions actually lies at the heart of the theological divide between Catholicism and Protestantism. At the time of Savonarola's death, the man who would initiate the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, was only 15 years old, but as he grew up, he began to develop the theological basis of the Protestant faith. He would come to develop the doctrine of sola fide, or justification by faith alone. In the Protestant worldview, worldly works and ceremonies are completely irrelevant to one's salvation. Only through faith can one be saved. Now, this is not to say that Protestants believe that one's actions in life are utterly meaningless, but rather that good works are derived from one's faith, and in a sense, assuming that one has been touched by God's grace, one's fate is predestined. This, in contrast to the Catholic view, which maintains that good works and participation in the sacraments are necessary to achieve salvation in addition to faith. Now, it is not my intention to get bogged down in a prolonged discussion of differing visions of Christian theology, but suffice it to say that the questions that Savonarola was grappling with in his final days of life would prove to be very controversial in the near future, and would, in a way, result in the reformation of the Catholic Church that he had so ardently desired for such a long time. The question as to whether or not Savonarola can himself be described as a Protestant or more accurately, as a sort of proto-Protestant, is an open question. However, his influence on the man who would go on to spearhead the Protestant Reformation is undeniable. These two commentaries on Psalms 51 and 30 would circulate widely in the decades following Savonarola's death. These works were printed in no fewer than 13 separate editions. One edition in particular, printed in the city of Strasbourg in 1524, warrants special attention, as it included an introduction written by none other than Martin Luther. Said introduction reads, quote, This man was put to death solely for having desired that one should come to purify the swamp of Rome. It was the Antichrist, read the Pope's, in hope that all remembrance of this great man would perish under a load of malediction, 
but thou seest that it lives and that his memory is blessed. Jesus Christ proclaims him a saint through our lips, even though the Pope and Papists should burst with rage. Even by these writings, one can see how works are of no avail in God's sight and how faith is the only thing that is needed. What if some theological mud still be found sticking to his feet? Who could altogether be free of it in those days? You will likewise see in his distrust and despair of his own strength and a pure image of faith and hope in God's mercy. Neither in the strength of his vows nor the rule of his order, neither in his priestly robe nor in his works did he rest hope, but solely in the gospel, in faith and righteousness. End quote. Although it is not exactly the place of historians to engage in hypotheticals, one does have to wonder, if Savonarola had lived to see the Protestant Reformation, what would his thoughts on the matter have been? My personal belief is that he likely would have sided with Luther originally, but would not have supported his ambitions to create a new church. Despite the fact that the accusation was leveled at Savonarola often in his lifetime, the man was not a schismatic. He only wished to see his beloved church reformed from within and not split. Anyway, it is with that lengthy digression that I will end the narrative for now. I had originally intended to wrap up Savonarola's story in this episode, but it seems that another part will be necessary in order to contain an adequate discussion of his legacy. So in the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., please feel free to email them to me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you've enjoyed this series, please consider supporting the show financially via either the show's Patreon page or by the eBay Marketplace. Links to both sites will be also found in this episode's description. Anyway, until two weeks from now, this has been the Perspectives in History podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.